For the majority of my life, I've lived about a two-minute walk from the Cooks River in Sydney's inner west. It's always been common knowledge that the river is sick. The sheer smell of it would turn me and my friends away a lot of the time, and if we did head down there, it was more common than not to see a floating car or red wheelie bin among the mudflats. But the river hasn't always been like this. When Captain Cook set eyes on it in 1770, he said it looked like a very fine stream and one fit to support the colonies that were to come. As we know, the fortunes of the Cooks River have changed dramatically since then. What was once a vibrant area of wetlands, swamps and estuaries has been diverted, polluted and abused to the point that I found it at when I moved there in 2005. So what is being done about this? Can the Cooks, once dubbed Australia's most polluted river, ever recover? It's Sunday morning and I'm in Hurlston Park, a quiet suburb in Sydney's inner west which is bordered on one side by the river. I've come to meet a group of committed locals down on the riverbanks who are passionate about the Cooks. Well, I moved here. I live on the other side of the bridge just here. And I moved here in 2012. And I saw people down here working away on the river and I said I wanted to get involved and thought that looks like a good thing to do. I moved on to Canterbury in 2011 and I used to ride my bike, go for running every day and there was heaps of rubbish and you know when you go for a run you, go, you get the runner's eye, you come back in a good mood but when I go run in the Cooks River I get upset and I was angry seeing all the rubbish so I joined with Matras that day. Both Ranjit and Anne who you just heard from are part of a group called the Mud Crabs. They meet in multiple locations up and down the river doing all they can to improve the environment here. I'm at their Ford Avenue site where they have been working once a month for 10 years to try and return natural vegetation to the riverbanks. Among the 20 or so mud crabs who around me are pulling out weeds, planting native trees and picking up litter, I find Peter Munro, one of the founding members. He tells me there was one person who was instrumental in getting the group together nearly 15 years ago. That man, Chris Bartlett in particular, who was a very highly, uh, very skilled, uh, very dedicated, uh, verging on obsessive. <laughs> but he, he just drew people to him um, in terms of, you know, they'd see him working. And that's how I, I met him, saw him pulling litter from the river and stopped and spoke to him and, and then said, I'd join you. So then he started ringing everyone up. Um, every, every time he had a clean-up, he'd ring 20, 30, then 40, then 50, then 60. So we then started an email system where we, and that now we've got 560 people on the email system. So why is their work necessary in the first place? What has happened to the Cooks River since the first fleet arrived that has led it to be known as Australia's most polluted river? To find out, we're going to have to go back even further. This is Think Sustainability. I'm Viktor Petrovich.
Before white people, um, the the river, the rivers in particularly towards the mouth of the river is in a swampy area, but it's a river that supported big Aboriginal populations. This is Jennifer Newman. She is a Wiradjuri woman and an Aboriginal studies lecturer at the University of Technology, Sydney. Populations who've used the river not only for for transport, not only for food sources and, and for fishing and gathering plant foods along its banks, but also as, as a mode of transport for moving around the country. And over time, the 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 economic and food sources in the river have changed a lot. So there's there's dugong skeletons that have that have since been uncovered, um, along with you know there's there's shell middens all along the river that show where people have gathered and lived. Um, but there's also dugong skeletons that tell us that way, way back when there have been very different, a very different set of animals and, and other creatures living here. The Cooks River starts at Botany Bay, runs through the Sydney suburbs of Tempe, Marrickville and Canterbury, 23 kilometres to its end at Strathfield in Sydney's west. As Jenny said, the river has changed its course and flow over many thousands of years, but nothing would compare to the invasion. Colonisers who settled in the Cooks River Valley after 1788 quickly sought about improving the land in ways they thought would be beneficial to them. Improvement meant that it would, there would, be, it would be a richer environment to farm. Uh, and So that would include making farmland uh, where there was formerly forest uh, and uh, being able to feed more people. Ian Tyrrell is an emeritus professor of history at the University of New South Wales. He published a book last year called River Dreams, which details the life and stories of the Cooks River. Ian says that the landscape that early settlers came across in the Cooks River Valley in the late 18th century was nothing like any landscapes they had come across before. The swamps, wetlands and estuaries didn't make sense to them as a properly functioning landscape. And with this in mind, along with the colonial push for agriculture and wealth, drastic changes followed. Vegetation was destroyed, land was cleared for agriculture, and to secure their water supply, as well as make the landscape into something more familiar, the river was dammed in the late 1830s. Ian says the motivations for making these drastic changes were typical of the outlook at the time. Much earlier in, uh, in, uh, in England, uh, swamps had been drained. That was to provide more farmland for food. So they, they just did not value the um, additional kind of what we now, would now call environmental services or ecological services which come from, from what swamps or what we call wetlands would do. They could only see things in terms of what, was a, what had a market value, what you could sell. Throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, the Cooks River adopted a number of roles for the growing colony. It would be used as an outlet for sewerage and stormwater, a dumping ground for industry, and its entire mouth into Botany Bay would be diverted to make way for the new Sydney airport. The very fine stream Cook had seen in 1770 was almost unrecognisable. It was very polluted. It was so polluted that the state government uh, forbade fishing from the river for the, for the first time in 1952. So the river was being dredged at that stage and parkland was being created on the side of it. But it's nothing like it 
it is now. I mean, they put in very few trees and the smell from the river was ter apparently terrible. After World War II, industry boomed in Sydney. This may have been good news for some residents, but for the Cooks River, this represented another setback. By the 1970s, after nearly two centuries of sewerage and industrial pollution, drastic alterations to its ecology and hydrology, and urban development, the river reached a low point. It really represents the pits, the bottom, the, the, um, the nadir of the river, the late, the late 20th century, because governments took so long to get around to really doing any effective collective action to clean up the river. The 1980s was really still bad. It was bad in the 1980s. And we obviously knew by that time uh, the effects uh, of pollution on water. On, on water. And um, not very much was being done about it. It was bad because of the smell and because there, there was uh, a lot, lots of cars were dumped in the river. So it was, it was full of uh, industrial waste. Uh, probably the main reason, it, at low tide it just didn't look very good when you could see these things exposed. There were a lot of complaints about that. So what was the river like for locals after all of this? Despite having a long history of use dating back thousands of years, the river was no longer a meeting place. The smell was gruesome, and a common joke was that even the fish didn't want to be there, as they would regularly jump above the water. As mud crab Peter Munro told me, litter was also a common sight. What would happen, the tide would come in and pick up all the floating litter and push it upriver. The floating litter coming downriver would meet that, and you'd have a blanket of across the river that you could almost walk across. It would just be covered in, in floating litter. So lots of litter was going oh, in. I reckon, I'd estimate that we've pulled out over the the years that we've been going, it'll be thousands and thousands of bags, bags this size here. They're, each bag's a cubic metre, and, and we, we pull out 100 to 200 every, every event. With the river in need of a massive amount of remediation, residents like Peter and the mud crabs stepped in. The mud crabs are an arm of advocacy group the Cooks River Valley Association, who, under a range of different names and iterations, have been cleaning up the river for nearly a century. In recent years, the group has been advocating for sustainability initiatives, including a container deposit scheme upriver and the removal of steel piling on the banks, both of which they achieved through lobbying efforts, including taking bags of litter out of the river and dumping it on the steps of the state parliament. The mud crabs are the volunteer wing of this association, created, as you heard, when local residents became fed up with the amenity of the river and had to do something about it. Anne Lay is a mud crab and also the president of the Cooks River Valley Association. So it's a combined, it's a combined effort. Um, yeah, so, and, and people who live here, you know, want to get involved. And years ago, the, the river was a polluted drain and it was little more than that. And people built their houses facing the streets. But now they're turning them around and facing the river. Um, so it's, instead of just being a, a horrible, nasty, stain, um, it's becoming a lovely haven of, of a place where you can relax. As they grew in number and realised success in their litter cleanups, 
the mud crabs moved on to another of the river's many challenges. With most of the native vegetation on the river's banks destroyed over time, Peter tells me they decided to turn their efforts to restoring the vital riparian zones, or the fertile landscapes found on the banks of rivers. Our focus has gone from litter to revegetation. Now we've got nine sites along the river that we're revegetating. And that's, sorry, it'll be ten now because we've just started another, it'll be eleven, we've just started another two. And, and they start by individuals who live near there saying, I want to start doing this. So we support them, um, give them gear, um, connect them with the council, and that group takes off and gets then supported by people in, in the local area. Yeah. The mud crabs have multiple sites up and down the river and boast hundreds of volunteer members wanting to do their bit. Walking around the mud crab site, I get a sense that what the group offers to them is a way that they can actively contribute to bettering the natural environment. And in a time when many people feel helpless to change the reality of our environmental future, the sense of action the mud crabs show is inspiring. One of the great things about the location of the river, even though we have been in Sydney's backyard, is that we're going through the heart of Sydney and it, it's dense with people who really care. This is Sue Burton. She heads the Cooks River Alliance, a body supported by four local councils to offer advice on river policy. People say it's quite special to be in really busy Marrickville uh, for example, and then be able to walk down and suddenly you're in this beautiful, quiet parkland with pelicans wandering over you. So, yeah, the community, having the community on board is absolutely special. Mm. Governance of the river in the past has been a bit of a hodgepodge of agencies, councils and government bodies all working on their own sections of jurisdiction without collaborating, which means that what is best for the whole Cooks River catchment has not been the main focus of any one body in the past. Sioux and the Cooks River Alliance are supported by four local councils and come up with strategies to deal with the range of issues caused by the river's history of non-existent or poor management. One of the biggest issues currently is stormwater. Most of the river is actually uh, legally classified as a stormwater asset. And so it's designed so that when it rains anywhere in the catchment, so from Bankstown, Potts Hill, um, Punchbowl, Lakemba, uh, Kingsgrove, anywhere around there, when it rains, it the stormwater system is designed to take the water away and when it was designed, a way was into the Cooks River and then into Botany Bay and then out to sea. And so one of its biggest challenges is now we now know there is no way. Now, you may think this water flow sounds normal. The Cooks is a river like any other and it's going to fill up with water sometimes. But directing large masses of storm water directly into the river is far from a natural process and has a massive impact on the environment, as Dr Ian Wright, Senior Lecturer in Natural Science at Western Sydney University, explains. Basically, as soon as you modify a natural environment, as soon as you, you know, remove one tree, um, create a track, clear a block, um, you start the path towards degradation of the waterway downstream. And I know that seems a bit strange, but particularly with the in today, really our, our urban development is an industrial scale. We 
remove native vegetation, we put up all these artificial hard surfaces, so they might be the tiled roof, um, footpaths, playgrounds, hard roads, um, giant parking areas. And as soon as we've done that, we have made, we have done, you know, incredible changes to the hydrology. So instead of water flowing slowly through the natural environment and making it into the river in an uncontaminated state, water that has flowed from houses and roads, picking up whatever may be in its path like motor oil or faeces, gushes into the river at a fast pace. Plumbers and engineers and drainage are super efficient at getting that water from your roof, from your backyard, from the road outside your house, everywhere across the urban and industrial landscape, piped, gutted um, into drainage lines, small creeks, and then into a place like the river. Contrast that with a natural waterway in a natural landscape, it would take a whole lot longer for that flow to get going, and it's a more slow and progressive rise, and then it takes a lot longer to fall. Much less energy, much less um, transport of um, contamination as well. The issues caused by stormwater, as well as the value of natural vegetation, are concepts which are front of mind for the mud crabs when they go about remediating the river. Among the volunteers I met at the Hurlston Park site were retired scientists and botanists who bring their knowledge to cleaning up their local river. Many mud crab sites are dedicated to restoring native vegetation, which is a major defence against the impacts of stormwater. Our dream is for the river to be come back to, to a natural thing, but over the over the 200 years since the Europeans arrived, the river's been interfered with. It's been changed. It's been um, filled. It's been redirected. The airport was put in. That's been the most significant thing that's happened to it. You know, it's been concreted. It's been sheet steel piled. It's been a whole range of things have happened. So, it is. It's not a natural river. Um, all, all the, all the met, uh, vegetation on the side was taken away. Um, so our aim is to get it back to as, possible, as much as possible a natural river. This passion, which facilitates so much action for the river, is what strikes me about not only the mud crabs, but so many people who live in the river's catchment. There's something about the river, the state it was in, and the future potential it has, that seems to energise people, especially those in the mud crabs. And their work, as well as the work of people like Sue Burton from the Cooks River Alliance, is having an impact. Sue tells me that the Cooks River will never return to what it was like before Europeans arrived, but that it has its own unique potential. When we do our ecological health monitoring, I read the other day, I was trying to work out why we always get a D, E and F, and the reason seems to be that uh, the gold standard, the A, is a pristine creek in George's River. And we'll, we'll never be a pristine, uh, up to the gold standard of A, of a pristine creek in George's River with platypuses and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll never get there. But we can get a river that looks like a river, which is getting rid of the concrete where possible. We can have a river that people can have access to. Much of it is fenced off because it's a stormwater asset. So we can increase the accessibility. We can uh, increase the health of the animals that live there so that over February when we have hot weather uh, and very still conditions, we don't get pelicans and ducks dying of botulism and fish dying from um, abnormal amounts of hot water entering the river. 
we can fix that. So we'll get a river that's healthy in Cook's River terms um, rather than pristine river terms. And that seems to be the goal of nearly everyone I've spoken to. People want the Cooks River to be the best it can be, and with the dark times of the 20th century behind it, these people seem to have hope that it can be more than a smelly stormwater drain. The river is already proving to be a community meeting place again, as it has been for thousands of years, as mud crabs Ranjit and Peter tell me. It's more like a connecting point. Like it's like where community come down to meet and socialize and for me personally it was my running and jogging place that's how i got involved with the mud traps mm. yeah it's definitely connecting it's connect you know it's ironical because the river is a, it's a connecting natural thing and all this all the creeks are connecting etc and it funnels people down here the bicycle track and the walking track i mean just standing here you can see how many people going by every day um and i think that that the, the you know, that sense that we are Cooks River people. It's we, If you walk downhill from where you live, you'll hit the river. It doesn't matter where you live in the catchment. Wiradjuri woman and UTS lecturer Jenny Newman migrated from her country in rural New South Wales to now live on Wongal country alongside the river. She says that rivers, whether they are on Wiradjuri country, Wongal country or Gadigal country, have a special importance. Since the beginning of time, human beings have come to rivers because we all need water to survive, um, but also because rivers offer places of shelter and food sources and shelter sources and, and you know, materials. So, so rivers are important because of that catchment and flow. And if rivers aren't able to be filled up by their catchment, and if rivers aren't able to flow unobstructed and seasonally and tidally and and beautifully forever perpetually then I, I think the the death of rivers is symbolic of, of the end of, of our, our capacity for life on earth really. And Jenny says the river has awakened something inside her that she didn't know was there. Living on the Cooks River um, as I have already said has has nourished me as Wiradjuri, an inland river person coming to live on an urban river. Um, but something that I really value in my life now that I live on the Cooks River has been the way that living in that location and living by that, living as part of that catchment has connected me to a wider community of really diverse people, um, descendants of convicts and soldiers from the First Fleet, so settler Australians, um, who also want to care for country in a, in a close, intimate relationship. And then with other more recently migrated people um, who, who live in my incredibly diverse area, um, the river is, is performing that catchment and flow and giving us a... a a, a really strong way of connecting with each other um, and perhaps um, perhaps breaking down barriers but certainly setting up um, avenues of communication and, and reasons for getting together amongst, amongst groups who otherwise might be a bit more separate. And what connects everybody is that sense of caring for country. Mm-hmm.
think sustainability is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Think Sustainability is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to Think Sustainability wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Victor Petrovich. Thanks for listening. Thank you.